It is Wednesday, August 9th, 2023, and welcome to episode 244 of Fault Lines as we continue our summer of AI series, Breaking Barriers, Understanding the AI Revolution. I'm Jamil Jaffer, NSI's founder and executive director, and today I'm thrilled to be speaking with Michelle Flournoy about how AI is changing our national defense landscape. Michelle is the co-founder and managing partner of West Exec Advisors and the former co-founder and CEO of the Center for New American Security, where she is now the chair of the board of directors. From 2009 to 2012, Michelle served as the Undersecretary of Defense for Policy and was the principal advisor to the Secretary of Defense. She served in a variety of roles throughout the DOD and has won a number of medals. And so we're thrilled to have uh, you here with us, Michelle, to talk about AI and the coming revolution. Yeah, great topic and important one and glad to be with you. Absolutely. So look, I think we should just jump right in. You know, we're, we're here to talk about AI, its role in our national defense. Um, and look, you know, with the, with the development and the broad accessibility now of, of LLMs, these large language models, um, AI has become all the rage. You know, so when it comes to our national security, net-net, uh, you look at it across the board, Michelle, do you see the advancements in AI as a net uh, opportunity or a net threat to us? You know, hard to say. I think it's both. Um, and it really okay. depends on how we manage this and what our adversaries do. So I think there are huge opportunities that we need to be taking advantage of now to keep our military edge and to be able to deter war with a power like China. Um, but there are also real risks in terms of how we do this. And, you know, it, really being serious about responsible AI, AI that is trustworthy and safe and explainable and so forth, that is really, really important if this is if we're going to manage the risks associated with those opportunities. Well, so let's talk about that. You know, this this notion of trustworthy AI and uh, balancing the risks with the opportunities uh, has been a theme, I think, for the administration. There's been a lot of talk about that. We just saw uh, just about uh, a week or two ago an announcement uh, that a number of the big AI players, Google, Meta, OpenAI, uh, and the like, have come together. Microsoft have come together and agreed with the administration uh, to voluntary uh, work on their AI algorithms, the way they develop them, the way they deploy them, to ensure trust, safety, security. How important are these voluntary commitments, and what's the role of regulation or legislation by Congress um, in this new rapidly evolving domain, in your view? So I do think the voluntary measures are a good stopgap, and I was glad to see those embraced by you know key industry players. But they're not enough. At some point, we're going to need both uh, regulation, um, but also real governance mechanisms and oversight mechanisms within government and within the user community. So you're going to have to have folks who are doing testing, evaluation, and validation constantly over these models, making sure that they actually perform as intended and not in some unexpected way. There's a lot of work to be done here, and well, I'm, I'm sure we can get into it, but also at the international yeah. level, establishing norms of behavior and so forth. But I think the voluntary measures are a start. Things are moving very quickly. Good to start with that, but we need to go far beyond that, in my view. So do you see the development of sort of a new industry? You know, uh, you know, when, when you and I started working on a lot of these issues back in the day, you know, cyber was a new domain. It's become a domain of warfare now, a domain of collection for our adversaries, uh, an opportunity and a threat uh, in a lot of ways. Um, do you see AI similar? Do you see it sort of the rise of a new industry to do the kind of uh, testing and validation um, uh, of algorithms? Uh, and the like in compliance? And if so, how's the government going to think about this? Is the government going to be a regulator in the first instance? Are they going to be a consumer of these services, both? I think you're going to have many agencies be consumers of 
the the tools, but I think mm-hmm. there will be some regulation. The truth is right now there's not enough of a clear understanding of what to regulate and how to regulate it. So there's a lot of educational sessions, discussions going on on Capitol Hill and with industry trying to figure out how do we actually make sure we're responsible about this, but we don't you know, tie our own hands behind our back. We don't hamper ourselves in what is in many senses a technology race with countries like China um, and others. Well, and I think that's an interesting, that's a really important point. You know, I think that's part of the reason we've seen the administration step cautiously here. You know, they've been talking about a potential need for regulation. You've seen Senator Schumer, uh, along with Senators Rounds, Young and Heinrich coming together as a, in a bipartisan fashion to try and do, as you say, these listening sessions and, and, and education sessions. Uh, they're going to do a series now of fora here coming up over the next few months. But, you know, one of the things that's been talked about a lot, and you've mentioned it yourself, is this idea of regulation. But you've got to balance that with ensuring that the innovation remains here and doesn't flee overseas, particularly to adversary nations like China. How concerned should we be about the Chinese getting a jump on us, uh, particularly when it comes to emerging technologies, whether that's artificial intelligence, quantum, high-performance computing, or the like? I, I do think we have to be concerned because they have you know, a very different system. In their system, there's a notion of civil-military fusion where if the military or the Communist Chinese Party wants a technology or an AI application that's been developed in the private sector, they just go and get it. And there's right. no barrier to that. We obviously have a very different system, which you know we all prefer, but most of us prefer, I would hope. Um, but you know, um, it is slower. It is more bureaucratic. There are more obstacles to overcome. And right now, the cutting edge really is in the private sector. So we have an innovation adoption challenge um, in the Department of Defense, and there's some reforms that have to happen to ensure that DOD is really AI ready and that it's ready in a responsible manner, that it's got the proper you know, oversight and talent to really make sure that the ethical principles that they've you know, laid out are actually put into practice. Well, so let's talk about that innovation challenge, because you've spent a lot of time working on, on exactly these issues for DOD. You were the principal author of the original Quadrennial Defense Review back in uh, you know, the, the early 2010s. Um, and now we're past the Quadrennial Defense Reviews. Now we're doing national defense strategies. Do you think DOD is AI ready or can it be AI ready given its challenge in adopting new technology? You know, we, we often go back to, you know, the, the traditional primes and maybe they sometimes bring in some more innovative players. But, you know, we've, we've had DIUX now, DIU for a while. We've had, uh, you know, DARPA. We've got all sorts of AFWorks and SoftWorks. You name it. There's a there's a cavalcade of, of acronyms that are trying to do innovation. Heidi Shu now has uh, the responsibility to run innovation for the department writ large, and there's a discussion of strategic capital. Are any of these things actually going to work? Can we actually get DOD to the point where it actually fails fast and, and adopts innovation rapidly? Um, the answer has to be yes. <laughs> but um, there are really two parts to the AI readiness question for DOD. The first is, do you have the infrastructure, the data infrastructure, the cloud infrastructure, the compute infrastructure to really be able to use AI at scale across an enterprise. And right. I think there, the department's on a journey. They're finally moving to a, a network of clouds. They're having, they're hiring companies to try to help them ready their data, scrub it, tag it, label it, organize it. Um, and they're starting to adopt some AI applications. The second piece, though, is the acquisition process, which has been optimized for buying aircraft carriers and submarines and fighter planes. It is not optimized for fast-moving, fast-developing 
software, and of which you know AI is obviously one type. Um, and so there, there's a lot of good prototyping, a lot of good experimentation, a lot of small-scale procurements. But the challenge there is scaling with speed. Um, yeah. And there, there's a lot of work to be done. I personally think we need to not only have the right you know guidance in place, which again I think they're working on, but you actually have to train a, a sub cadre of people who are really experts in AI acquisition and and, and contracting because yes. it's a totally different incentive structure and a totally different process than what your usual acquisition professional has been trained in. So you got to train them, you got to reward them for a different set of behaviors, higher right. risk tolerance, higher speed, and then you have to have a promotion track where they can, once you've got these experts, you, you try to keep them and you try to... Yeah. Um, grow them over time. So there's a lot of work to be done on that. You know, it's a great point. And, and I think you're exactly right. Uh, this need for a, a whole a different cadre of people to acquire this kind of innovative technology. And it's not just AI. It's all of these emerging technology capabilities. It's it's software writ large, right? The DoD culture today, as you know, uh, just doesn't adapt well to to rapid acquisition, failing fast, and then getting promoted if you fail a bunch of times, but then succeed wildly. You know, if you fail too often, you're out. There's no there's no surviving that, and that's the culture that needs to shift. But is that realistic in the current structure? Can we actually achieve that? And if so, it might be a workforce problem. How do we address? You, you mentioned it earlier. We need these AI professionals. We need these kind of acquisition folks that are able to to pivot rapidly. I mean, that sounds like a, a decades long process creating that workforce. Can we get there even fast enough? Well, I think, again, we have to go as fast as we can. And, and in addition to creating a sub-cadre of the acquisition core that is trained and incented differently, you've got to really open up the, high, you know, the, the, the human capital highways to bring more tech talent in. Because even if we're not going to build the AI tools ourselves, we have to be smart enough to know what good looks like, to be able right. to write requirements or to define a problem set or to evaluate a new model or a new tool, and to do the testing and evaluation and the ongoing governance. So there are all kinds of great ideas out there for how do you um, increase uh, tech um, talent in government. There, We did a lot of this with cyber. You mentioned cyber. We, right. we changed pay scales, made people HQEs. We gave people scholarships. So we'll pay for your college if you come work for the government for five years after in cyber. We could do something similar. Um, people like Eric Schmidt have talked about creating a digital academy, digital reserves, you know, ways of bringing more tech talent, at least for a tour of duty, into into government. So we should be exploring all of those things because it's going to be very hard to get enough people with the right skills in the time frame we need them. And you mentioned HQE. Is that you mean highly qualified experts? Is that is that where you can pay people more than normal government pay scale if you need them for a particular purpose? Yes, exactly. Got it. Got it. You know, one of the things that often comes up, and you know, and I almost hesitate to bring it up because it's almost cliche, uh, but you know, in, in this AI environment where we're talking about national defense and AI, the conversation of you know of, of sort of robot weapons and you know uh, uh, you know autonomous uh, d deployment of weapons capabilities always comes up. In fact, we had a, a recent unfortunate incident where a news story about a a thought experiment turned into uh, a, a, an actual story of a drone turning on its operator and seeking to kill the operator, not actually what happened, uh, but just simply a thought experiment about what could happen uh, potentially down the road. Um, uh, how, how concerned should we be about autonomous weapon systems? How should we think about them? I mean, we've had autonomy at some level in our weapon systems for a long time, not complete autonomy. There's still always a human in the loop, 
but you know, our, our Aegis systems on our, on our guided missile destroyers um, operate with some level of autonomy. Is this something uh, the American people uh, should be worried about, see as an opportunity, or how should we think about it? And what role does ethics have to play in autonomous weaponry? Right. Well, I think, you know, the, the, the vision of killer robots is something that is, should concern all of us. You know, the autonomy that we've allowed in our weapon system so far is really kind of, I would say, semi-autonomy. And it's really for defensive purposes when a threat is coming in at such speed that the only way you're going to shoot it down is to allow the um, the weapon to, to, to seize on a target and, and shoot. And over time, we've perfected that to really reduce the risk of misidentifying targets. In the early days, right. there were some airplanes shot down and other things, a horrible tragedy. I think this has gotten, you know, improved a great deal, but it's very, it's a very narrow application in, in defenses. I think what we're going to see long before we ever get to the point of killer robots is a lot of other AI applications that I think we should be able to get more comfortable with. Number yeah. one, using AI to sort through the overwhelming amount of intelligence to find the needles in the haystack that then an analyst can really focus their analytic time on to get to more predictive uh, intelligence, longer warning times, greater accuracy, etc. Two, human machine teaming. So you're not going to have a swarm of killer robots off doing things by themselves, but you could have human machine teaming where a human being, a fighter pilot, a destroyer driver, a submarine captain, can be directing a swarm of unmanned systems alongside the rest of his or her assets to have a more impact, greater impact and create a much greater challenge for an adversary on the battlefield. Um, and then things like using AI to give us more resilient command control communications, almost like a, you know, a smart web uh, mesh uh, switching mm-hmm. system. So you're rerouting traffic at machine speeds when one part of the right. system is attacked or degraded. These are the kinds of things we should be focused on, because I don't think the U.S. military is ever going to accept fully autonomous weapons that human beings do not control for offensive purposes. Well, so let's talk about uh, each of those pieces uh, you know, separately. Let's talk about the intelligence piece, because I think that's really important. I think you're exactly right that you know our ability to process and analyze the massive amounts of data that come in today could be revolutionized by, by artificial intelligence. But I, w- I worry about our adversaries. So as, as you well know, um, we've now uh, publicly disclosed that the Chinese were responsible for the OPM hack, where they got uh, the vast majority of information about security-cleared personnel, your security clearance information, mine as well. Um, and, you know, they've gotten large databases from commercial providers, uh, you know, credit uh, databases, travel databases, and the like. Are we concerned that, that with that collection of data that they have today, uh, that they can combine that information, apply these machine learning algorithms, and really develop highly capable, not just human capabilities, but also, you know, think about the way that we might operate um, in in the battle space in real time. Is that something we should be concerned about? And if so, what are we doing or what ought we be, ought we be doing, if we can't talk about what we're actually doing, um, to get ahead of that problem? Well, I do think we need to worry about it. Um, it's one of the reasons why the government has banned, you know, all of our military members from using TikTok, for example. Right. Or, um, because of the data collection possibilities on people who are serving in the armed forces. Um, so I do think we have to be worried about this, but it's tough because, you know, we need to be smart. We need to prevent them from accessing the data of Americans violating their privacy and so forth. But you can't really regulate an algorithm. I mean, so I think a lot of what the administration's thinking about is, can we regulate um, high advanced, you know, high capacity chips? 
Can we regulate access to the most cutting edge, um, high capacity or high performance computing? You know, what are the right ways to try to constrain the China, China's ability to really realize what, you know, the kind of uh, situation that you were just described. Yeah, I mean, look, there are there are a lot of discussions, as you know, that the administration has been really forward leaning, and I think in a, in a successful way when it comes to semiconductor technology uh, and China. So that's been a real win for the administration. But one of the challenges I think we face is, as you point out, it's not just semiconductors, it's not just um, those capabilities or the high performance computing, we've long regulated those capabilities, right? There is this question about algorithms. And to your point, it's very hard to regulate or constrain the dispersal of an algorithm. And yet we've heard discussions, at least, uh, you know, they're, they're, we've heard some rumors about internal discussions about whether algorithms for export may be regulated. We do, uh, we do regulate, you know, the, the, uh, the export of, of certain kinds of encryption technology. That might be a, a basis for doing, uh, something on algorithms. But there's also been some discussion, very nascent, about potential domestic limitations as well, potentially treating algorithms or the capabilities uh, as a dangerous drug or, you know, a, a pandemic virus. That seems to me a little sort of outside the norm. Can you imagine that kind of regulation or, or do we think it's more likely to be to be to sort of fix it, fix on the export controls and the more traditional uh, ways that we approach these things? Well, I think the jury is out. I mean, these mm. lots of ideas are being put on the table. Some of them are good. Some of them are not so good. Um, but I think the real, the key is to really understand the second, third, fourth order effects. Because in addition to thinking about, you know, how we control the other guy, we also really have to be focused on how does, what has an impact our ability to compete effectively? Because so much right. of this will be about how do we, how much are we able to invest in the drivers of our own competitiveness, you know, here at home? And, and so we don't want to do something that kind of has a second or third order effect of hurting ourselves more than it hurts the other guy. Right, right. And, you know, and so to your point about weaponry, right, one of the questions I think that's been discussed a lot is, you know, we may have an ethical framework around around autonomous weapons and we may decide, okay, we're not going to allow that, you know, an extreme level of autonomy. Uh, what happens if we either can't convince um, our allies to adopt a similar framework or even worse, we can't convince our adversaries to adopt that framework and uh, they go to a significant level of autonomy. Are we going to have to respond in order just to be fast enough to be inside that decision loop? And if so, what does that do about our ethical framework that you described in this idea that DOD will probably never accept, I think rightly so, a complete autonomy and weapon system? Look, I, I'm actually very hopeful that we will gain some agreement among our allies and partners and a lot of countries in the world who want to make sure that there are some ethical guardrails around or normative guardrails around the applications of, of AI in, in the national security space or the international security space. So I actually think we will get, see some norms emerging soon. Now, the question is, will China sign up to that? Will Russia sign up to right. that? Will Iran sign up to that? Will North Korea sign up to that? And in some cases, I think it's very important to have these discussions with those countries to make them aware of the downside risks to them of sort of breaking some of these norms. But ultimately, what you want is, even if it's not, you know, you don't have 100% compliance, you want a normative basis for imposing costs if a country does um, ignore the norms or, you know, cross a red line, etc. So um, that said, you know, in an actual wartime situation, um, if you know, sort of China or another country were to throw caution to the wind and 
start using killer robots. Um, you know, there would be tremendous pressure to try to respond. But my argument and my hope is that we would be able to come up with asymmetric ways to yeah. respond that undermine their effectiveness while also ensuring that we stick to our values and our norm normative framework and which is what separates us from from others. Um, so that's what I think we should be thinking about. How do how do we deter conflict in the first instance? And then if there is AI used you know, how do we keep our edge but consistent with our ethical principles? Well, look, I think that's a great note to end on. I think it's exactly right. We've got to do this in a way that promotes innovation, uh, that ensures trustworthiness of these systems. And ultimately, when it comes to warfare, that we don't only fight and fight to win, but we do so within our ethical framework. So really appreciate you taking the time to, spe to spend some time with us and our listeners uh, today. Uh, that's a wrap. Thanks so much to Michelle Flournoy for coming on our podcast for our special Summer of AI series, Breaking Barriers, Understanding the AI Revolution. Thanks also to Brooke Khan, Angela Mangione, and Devlin Burney from NSI and Claude Jennings for the help in producing today's episode. Faultlines is also now on YouTube, so you can see our smiling faces, me and Michelle. And if you like what you heard, do not forget to rate, review, and subscribe, so you, and share with all your friends so that everyone can get in the Faultlines ecosystem, wherever they get your podcasts. Thanks, everybody, and have a great day.